You are listening to a podcast from Vineyard Church of Augusta. For more information, visit vineyardaugusta.org. We're wrapping up this sermon series we've been doing through Ephesians. We've been in Ephesians for like three months, and I don't know about you, I've loved it. I've loved the myriad of voices. I've loved the myriad of topics that, that the book itself has just brought us through, and I love where it's ending off this morning. Um, uh, as we kick this off this morning, there's a, there's a certain movie that came up in our small group discussion this last week, and so I'm aware that, that not everyone has seen this movie, and so, like, spoilers, right? Spoilers, but I've got a short movie clip for you guys to kick off this morning. We've done what you told us. We brought you the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West. We melted her. Oh, you liquidated her, eh? Very resourceful. Yes, sir. So we'd like you to keep your promise to us, if you please, sir. Not so fast. Not so fast. I'll have to give the matter a little thought. Go away and come back tomorrow. Tomorrow? You've had plenty of time already. Yeah. Do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz. I said come back tomorrow. If you are really great and powerful, you'll keep your promises. Do you presume to criticize the great Oz? You ungrateful creatures think yourselves lucky that I'm giving you audience tomorrow instead of 20 years from now. Oh. The great Oz has spoken. Oh. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great Oz has spoken. Who are you? Oh, I, I, I am the great and powerful wizard of Oz. You are? Uh, I don't believe you. No, I'm afraid it's true. There's no other wizard except me. You humbug! Yeah. Yes, it's exactly so. I'm a humbug. Oh, you're a very bad man. Oh, no, my dear. I, I'm a very good man. I'm just a very bad wizard. <laughs> yeah, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Today, I've called this message for you guys behind the curtain. Again, apologies for the spoilers, if, if you didn't know. I mean, the movie's called The Wizard of Oz. You're expecting something kind of magnificent, and, you know, he's just a very bad wizard. Um, This morning, though, what I want to unpack, what I want to talk about through this last passage of Paul as he's wrapping up his book to the Ephesians is this idea that there is more going on behind the curtain than what appears on the stage. There is more going on behind the curtain than what appears on the surface of life as we even just go about our, like, everyday business. And so what Paul's doing in this letter to the Ephesians is he takes this last opportunity to pull back the curtain to show who's really like pulling all the levers and pushing the buttons and causing all the smoke and all of these things behind all of the trouble and the trials that he and this this fledgling movement of people that are following Jesus, these trials and tribulations that they are all facing. What's really going on behind the scenes, he says, is, is there's this like cosmic battle that that maybe we're not even aware of, a battle between God's kingdom as he paints it and and the kingdom of 
the devil. So if you've got Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to pick up in verse 10. Um, and But before we read, let's invite God's presence to come and, and open up our eyes and ears and hearts to hear whatever he has for us. God, we thank you for your presence here today. I, just, I, just, I already have like this keen sense of your presence in the people that I've said hello to this morning and just walking, watching people as they walk in the door. You've met us in worship already. And we just pray now through the reading of your scriptures that you would be near. God, give us a real tangible sense, Lord, not just of ideas, not just of words, but, but of your actual presence. And I pray that you would speak to us each in whatever ways we need to hear you. Pray that your voice would speak much more loudly than my own today. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So in verse 10, here's where Paul goes. Verse 10 through the very end of the letter. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand." Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests, With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters with love um, and with love, with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Now, I want to start off backing way up to like, I think the second verse we read, this phrase that Paul throws in there that's just, Take your stand against the devil's schemes. This kind of paints the picture of the purpose of why he's even talking about what he's doing. Take your stand against the devil's schemes. And so, which first means we got to talk a little bit about the devil, right? Which I know is like super exciting. You all were like super jazzed to like show up today, you know. Uh, the, the other Sunday you guys were all excited about was, was uh, Don's when he was preaching on like sexual morality and stuff. That's the other Sunday. That's the other day that you're like, I don't care if it's drizzly outside. I'm going to church. You know? Now, this word devil that Paul uses is this word diabolos, and this is just the Greek term meaning false accuser or slanderer. 
This was not like a made-up term. This was not even just a religious term that Paul's using. It was just a common term that means a false accuser or slanderer. It's analogous to, if you're familiar with Hebrew stuff, it's analogous to the Hebrew term shatan, which is where we get the word Satan, right? Everybody just sounded a little bit like the church lady when you said that. I loved it, right? Um, which, which devil and Satan both are not, they're not necessarily intended to be um, proper names as we oftentimes use them. Sometimes in the Bible, they're sort of used that way, um, but oftentimes they're not. They're, they're often more meant to be descriptors of roles, or they're describing activities that this person or this being might do. They're describing the character, right? So, so a devil accuses, a devil slanders, a devil defames and dehumanizes and shames and in general lies about anything and everything to cause havoc in a person's life, right? This is, this is what a devil aims to do. Now, and I, I know how all of this sounds. I know how all of this sounds. Um, we, we have probably one of two people in the room. One is, is someone who's just like, you've been in church your whole life and you hear talk about like devils and angels and demons and whatever, and you're just like, oh yeah, of course, you know? Um, or there's those of us, and maybe some of us who have grown up in church your whole life, and you're kind of like, well, I don't know, right? It sounds kind of fantastical, right? To have this whole other world in this supernatural kind of way. But, but let me just say here, like even the way that Paul names this and the way that Jesus talks about it, like this is just the scriptural view of reality. And, and more pointedly, again, this is Jesus' view of reality. Demons are more prominent in the Gospels than any other section of the Bible, which seems wacko, right? It's like surprising that suddenly Jesus shows up on the scene, and this is when devils somehow finally take the forefront. Now, of course, there was a power battle going on, right? And so, of course, they're going to kind of show all of their cards, as it were. But it can be kind of hard, especially for us as as post-enlightenment Western people to think that there's anything more going on behind the curtain. But of course there is, there is in the biblical view. Um, now there's a wonderful book called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. If you guys are familiar with C.S. Lewis, uh, most famous for the Chronicles of Narnia series, right? Or like children's series. The Screwtape Letters isn't exactly like children's literature. I mean, read it with your kids. It's probably, it's probably good, you know? I probably didn't read it till high school, um, which was still probably a great time to do it. Um, but it's, the, it's this delightfully fascinating and poignant little book called The Screwtape Letters. And it's a satire, right? So it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Sometimes it's not intended to be reality. Um, it, it is fiction in many ways. But what it consists of is 31 letters that the author has somehow mysteriously come to possess. He never really tells us how, but he came across these letters and feels compelled for the betterment of humanity to like publish them in a public way. And what these letters are is they are letters from an experienced devil named Screwtape, hence the Screwtape letters, right? That's his name. His mother loved him a whole lot. <laughs> Little Screwtape, you know? Um, writing letters to his young protege, Wormwood, also had a great mom, with all kinds of advice and effective strategies for tempting the human assigned to him, right? Wormwoods, he's learning the ropes, and he's been assigned this young man that he's supposed to tempt, and he's getting advice from Screwtape. And wide variety of topics, wide range of insights into humanity and sin and darkness and all these kinds of things. Um, now, chapter 7 is, is a letter in which Screwtape instructs Wormwood on how to influence his human's thinking about themselves as devils, 
right? Because this is a problem, right? If humans start thinking about what these devils are doing, it could cause problems for their work, right? And so here's what he writes. Um, Screwtape writes this to Wormwood. He says, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We really are faced with a cruel dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics, at least not yet. He goes on. The fact that, quote, devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you, right? Tomorrow's Halloween, guys. You're going to see this comic figure out and about, right? Little kids, they got a little red tail, some little red horns and a pitchfork or something, right? This is what devils has become often to our minds. But he says this will help you. He says, if any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it is an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. What Lewis is saying here, what Lewis is suggesting to us, is that, in, to, to summarize this, is that the devil's telling, that the Screwtip is telling Wormwood, the young devil, to convince this man, pay no attention to the devils behind the curtain. Right? Oh, pay no attention. Pay attention to what you see on the stage, all the, the smoke and the noise and the flame and the flashing lights. Pay no attention to the devils behind the curtain. But Paul here, he's pulling back that curtain and he's letting us see, nope, there is more going on behind the scenes than we tend to realize or be aware of. And he says, then take your stand. Now, it's interesting in this idea of take your stand, Paul, Paul lists six spiritual elements that he's already mentioned in the letter. He's already brought these things up. He's kind of bringing them back in, but now he's bringing them into vivid reality through the physical metaphor of a Roman soldier, like decked out in all of his gear. It's been suggested by, by a lot of scholars that Paul, of course, is in prison at this point, that like he's sitting here writing his letter and he sees this Roman soldier out there standing guard and he's like, oh, this is helpful, right? So he's using this vivid metaphor that people would be very, 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 very familiar with. And we're going to take a few moments to consider these six, what I'm calling spiritual elements, or that Paul relates them to these pieces of armor. He talks about truth. He talks about righteousness. He talks about peace and faith and salvation and the word of God. And each of these, though, if you just say those words, can suddenly be like really just amorphous, like religious sounding words, right? Like, of course, you come to church and like you're going to hear the word faith, right? Or you're going to hear somebody talk about truth, or you're going to hear somebody talk about righteousness or the word and on and on. But what happens with these kinds of words that can be overused is that, that sometimes we have difficulty defining them or having any practical idea of like, well, what do they actually mean to me? How do these words make any kind of difference in my life? This is what Paul is trying to bring into vivid reality with his armor metaphor. So it's also important to note when he says, take your stand against the devil's schemes, right? There's these devils that they're scheming. They've got plans. According to Screwtape, they have policy, you know, that they just got to follow. We got to be ready for it. 
is that Paul's picture here is not of a soldier invading enemy territory, but of one standing his ground, unshaken, undeterred, right? Stand firm. He says this form of like, be strong in the Lord or stand firm, like five times, I think, in these short verses. Stand firm. This is not an offensive idea that Paul is portraying to us at this moment. It's, it's a defensive position. So we're going to take a look at these six real quick. You guys ready? Yeah? We good to go? Everybody's on board? There's devils. They want to stay hidden. Right? We're going to let Toto out now. Okay? And we're going to get some armor on. Um, now, the first thing he talks about is truth. And what we want to look at here is what Paul is trying to convince us of is that truth is what holds everything together. Truth is what holds everything together. This is the belt of truth, right? This is great for VBS stuff, you know? You get a little belt. Truth is what holds everything together. Now, of course, the question is, like, well, what truth? What truth is Paul, what truth is Paul referring to? The truth about what or the, the truth about whom? Now, Paul uses this word truth in two really distinct ways in Ephesians. If you remember, for the most part, most of the Christians that were living in and around Ephesus had, had not had any other exposure to other apostles. They didn't have access to other people who were writing letters like Paul. This one letter may have been, in some cases, their only exposure to any kind of Christian theology. So even their idea of truth, as well as righteousness and peace and all these other things that Paul talks about, are really only coming from this one letter. And Paul uses the word truth to talk in two really distinct ways. The first one is he means the truth of the gospel of Jesus, right? The, the true statements and the true nature of the good news that Jesus Christ came to earth. Like in, in chapter one, verse 13, he says, in him, Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. There's this fundamental truth that holds everything together about Jesus, who he is, why he came, what he did, what he's continuing to do. But second, interestingly, is that Paul also refers to truth being believers, being people who tell the truth. That as believers, we can't just say truth is just believing in Jesus. He's like, no, no, no. You also have to become truth tellers, which is in direct opposition to the devil, by the way, who's a liar, right? In chapter four, he has these two really strong statements. He said, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. Paramount to our growth and maturity as a people is speaking the truth in love to one another. He goes on, he says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Guys, telling the truth matters. Sometimes we feel like telling the truth is unkind or it makes things uncomfortable, right? Sometimes we want to tell the truth, but we don't do it very lovingly. We don't do it in the way that Christ would do it. But here's the thing, if, if we cannot tell the truth, then we can't expect to somehow be, be magically protected. Because that's the way armor works, right? What does Paul tell us? Put it on. You have to actually put it on. If we do not center our lives around the truth of Jesus and or if we do not learn how to tell the truth to one another, 
then we're left vulnerable, quite literally with our pants down. The truth is what holds everything together. He goes on to talk about righteousness, which is such a big word. If you ask anybody in here, like, what does righteousness mean? You know, ask like 20 people, you're going to get like 20 different answers. Now, again, we're getting this picture, right? The breastplate of righteousness, this big piece that's covering your torso. And what Paul's painting a picture of is that living a life acceptable to God will protect our true inner selves. Because again, this is what they saw, this breastplate that covers all your vital organs, right? We view the center of our being being like our heart. This is a very Greco-Roman kind of idea as well, right? And this is the place of most lethal attack, maybe second to your head, which we'll get there in a minute, right? Like you can get stabbed in your arm and you're not likely to die as fast as if you get stabbed in the chest, you know? I'm, just, I'm not speaking from experience. This is just conjecture. I'm not, a, I'm not a, a medic or anything, but I'm guessing that's the case. Now, what's interesting is Paul only uses his word righteousness one other time, um, but, but this, is, this is still really important. Ephesians 4.24, he says, you were taught, you were taught to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What he means is that when you become new creatures in Christ, that God's righteousness has become part of us. What, he, what he's saying to them is live like the new you. Live like the new you who is recreated to be more like God. Not like the old you that didn't know how to tell the truth. Not like the old you that just lived whatever way you wanted. And righteousness can carry two, two main connotations in all of Scripture. The first being like right standing before God, right? And this is what we are imparted with with Christ. We are imparted his righteousness to where now, if we are in Christ, when God looks at us, he doesn't see our unrighteousness. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. That, it, it affects God's perception of us, which is amazing, right? That we don't deserve that. This is God's free gift to us in Christ. But righteousness also constantly refers in Scripture to right conduct, living the right way. And this is what the whole last half of Ephesians is all about, right? If you've been tracking with us. How do you live? How do you behave? How do you relate to one another in this world? Another side note, if you missed Don's sermon, A Call to Be Different from back on October 9th, highly strongly encourage you to take a listen to that. It was one of the hardest chunks of, of Scripture in this entire book, but it has to do with righteousness and living a life acceptable to God. Guys, how we live matters. I had this conversation with someone recently that it's really difficult now um, we're kind of past this age by and large, right? There's still, there's still bits of this. But, but back when we went through this season of Christianity, at least in the West, that was very legalistic, very rules-oriented, very condemning, lots of shame, all of this, everybody scrutinizing every little way that you live. Of course, then coming out of, of the Reformation, we suddenly realized, wait a minute, salvation is by faith, right? It's not what I do. It's all by grace. And so suddenly that coming out of all this legalism, sometimes we kind of still feel like we can live however we want, right? Oh, there's grace. God forgives me. Yes and yes, but how we live still matters if we want to live protected. If you want to live unprotected, by all means, 
Live however you want. How we live matters. We cannot live however we very well please and still expect to somehow be magically protected by the breastplate of righteousness. If we're not putting it on, we're vulnerable. You have to put it on. It's, it's, it's appalling sometimes as, as just as a human, but then sometimes even as a pastor, we meet people that cannot fathom why their life is going so wrong, right? Why are all these bad things happening to me? Maybe it's because you're making really bad choices. Yes, God loves you, but you're leaving yourself vulnerable to attack. Paul is saying, don't do that to yourself. Put on this breastplate of righteousness. Consider carefully how you live. And the more that you look like him, the more protected you'll be. Now he goes on to talk about peace. I love this one. I'm gonna have to try myself really hard to like, I'm just gonna read. I'm gonna stick to the script. Peace is our competitive advantage. This is what I think Paul's getting at here. Peace, guys, is our competitive advantage. Here's what people saw when he's describing this, this Roman centurion, right? And in their mind's eye, they've seen them. They see them walking around all the time is what they would picture is the Roman caliga, which was their like sandal, essentially. This by, by, by far is probably the single greatest military like technology that the Roman army had that caused them to be such a force to be reckoned with. More than almost anything else. Footwear, right? Footwear in the ancient world was not very common. There was no Zappos, right? There was no rack room in like every strip mall in Judea. They weren't around right? By and large, people just kind of, you'd walk around barefoot. This is why washing feet was a big deal, because the feet were just gross, right? Like, nobody had thought of shoes yet. Guys, it took us so long to come up with shoes. <laughs> Such is human history, right? But what the Romans did come up with was the caliga. Now, sometimes people would wear sandals, which were, were very crude, very simple, very open. They could at least let you, like, walk on rocks a little bit, you know, you could maybe walk a little bit farther. But this, this Roman caliga was essentially like, it was kind of like a half boot. It was sort of like a half boot. They resemble modern sandals, but they were really like heavy-soled marching boots. If you want your army to move further, faster, you put these on. And suddenly, no, no other army could stand up to them. Besides protecting simply the bottom of the foot, they were designed to prevent blisters. They also had hobnails hammered into the bottom for like added reinforcement as traction. So when he says stand your ground, they could stand their ground. And so these became symbolic of the unstoppable expansion of the Roman Empire. The Roman Caliga was their competitive advantage. They could march further, faster, and the individual soldier was much harder to knock off his feet by an opposing combatant. Now, Paul says, this is what peace is like. The peace of the gospel of Jesus. Now, and there's different words in Greek even for peace, but the one that's used here is irene. And if you look up the definition of this, man, it's kind of stark, right? What, what, what Paul is not getting at is some kind of inner state of peace. He's not talking about like, do you feel a state of tranquility today, Right? Or if you're a four in the Enneagram like me, you're like taking stock of, of your equanimity, you know? Like dinner last night threw off my equanimity like big time. That's not what Paul's talking about, right? He's not talking about how you feel on the inside. Irene means a state of national tranquility. Exemption from the rage and havoc of war. Peace between individuals. 
means security and safety and prosperity. Because peace and harmony, they, they keep things safe enough to be prosperous. This idea of peace is macro peace, communal peace, societal peace. So he's not talking about the state of the individual's soul. And that may be in there, but only insofar as it falls under this umbrella of social peace. Listen to what he says, right? The unifying power of peace is a really big deal in Ephesians. It's a really big deal. In, In chapter two alone, he says a few things. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has done what? He has made the two groups one, If you remember this, he's talking about Jew and Gentile and what a big division it was. He's made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace between all people. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. Later, if you jump up to verse four, Paul then takes this back into account and he tells the Ephesian believers, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And then he says, put peace on your feet like a Roman soldier. This is the thing that is gonna get you further, faster than anybody else in society. Let me just suggest a few things. Um, and, and you might be aware that we don't necessarily live in a state of national tranquility. That as we, we must walk into this current political season, and we as Christians must walk into the impending national political season, that's right around the corner, with the peace of Jesus. Now, by saying peace is our competitive advantage, I don't mean so that our side can win. If we think that, we're forgetting what Paul said, that we do not battle against flesh and blood. What I mean is that in our present culture, if we Christians do not invade the battleground of politics in a way that brings peace, And especially if we only add to the vitriol, if we only add to the division, we will all lose. And I think this is true in the spirit. I think this is true from the lens of scripture. Guys, I also feel it in the air of our country. We could all lose really, really badly. Unless we bring in peace. Peace is not our competitive advantage against the opposing party, but against the opposing darkness behind the curtain. You realize every time someone's talking politics in our country right now, there's a devil going, pay no attention to those devils behind the curtain. And we say, okay. (laughs) We're distracted by all the flashing lights, all the noise, all the flames, right? Pyrotechnics are cool, guys. They're going to get your attention. They will keep your attention. Pay attention to the devils behind the curtain. They're behind the Republican curtain. They're behind the Democratic curtain. They're behind the Libertarian curtain. They're behind the Socialist curtain. They're behind, like, every curtain. That's what they do. 
yeah, we vote the way we vote, right? We gotta still like make decisions. We gotta weigh good and bad. We gotta decide which like policies and issues are more important to us. Do your homework, make your best decision. Don't be fooled. Put peace on your feet. Guys, how we walk, I'm off topic, I'm off the script. I told you, I warned you. How we walk into the fray matters. We must walk into the fray, guys. We have to. I think it would be irresponsible for any of us to just completely check out and say we're not going to engage and we're not going to vote or we're not going to have you know, conversations with people, right? We, we have to walk into the fray. How we walk into the fray, the manner with which we walk into the fray matters. And we cannot come in bringing even more chaos and then expect somehow to still be magically protected. We'll be barefoot and we will lose. Again, that's not the way armor works. You have to put it on. Moving on to faith, right? Paul says this. Um, well, here's how I boil it down. Is that believing loyalty to Jesus can shield any part of ourselves from any attack. Believing loyalty to Jesus can shield any part of ourselves from any attack. Um, this is what they saw. This is another really interesting factoids is that the Roman soldiers were equipped with large rectangular wooden shields, like four feet high, right? Which is great for shorties like me. That's pretty much my whole person, right? <laughs> Not that I could lift one of these things either, right? Four feet high, fronts were made of leather, and before battles, again, this is another one of their like, like uh, uh, innovations that they would make is that before battles, which especially if they knew flaming arrows might be fired, the leather would be wetted to quench any fiery darts against them, right? If you just have wooden shields, there's always the potential that the fire is going to catch, right? There you go. Um, so they would wet them. This is the picture that Paul is saying. He's saying this is the protective power of faith that you can hold up in front of yourself. And it's much more mobile, right? The breastplate kind of stays where it is. The shoes kind of stay where they are. But the shield, we can move it around. And so those vulnerable parts of us, our arms, our legs, our necks, our faces a little bit, whatever, that are maybe exposed, we can see it coming and we can stop it. Now, the question, of course, is like, well, what does Paul mean by faith? Um, probably my favorite definition of faith comes from N.T. Wright, where he calls it believing loyalty to Jesus. Faith is believing loyalty to Jesus. The Greek word pistis can actually have two carry, uh, carry two meanings with it. One is faith as in to believe in something, right? Or to believe in someone. But it can also mean faithfulness to someone else. Sometimes even in the New Testament, pistis is used to describe Jesus' faithfulness to us, right? We have pistis towards Christ. We trust in him. We believe in him. He also demonstrates pistis towards us in his undying faithfulness to us. So in the Christian view, faith in must always mean faithfulness to. It's not just about like, have you consented to this like list of doctrines, you know, and you just said like, yes, I do in front of a bunch of people and like, there you go, right? It's not just faith in, it's faithfulness to Jesus. Or to put it another way, the Christian view is belief in must always mean loyalty to. And this is the trick with Jesus, guys, is he's not about divided loyalties. He's not into sharing the throne of our hearts with other purported rulers. 
Here's what Paul says about faith back in chapter 3. He says, All of this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. You guys remember this? Boldness, access, confident entrance into God's presence. What he's saying is that faith, guys, this, this believing loyalty to Jesus gives you direct access to the Father. And it gives Jesus direct access to you, he goes on to say. And guys, there is no safer place to be. There's no safer place to be than knowing that you can enter into God's presence and knowing that Jesus is constantly bringing himself to you as well. So how we express our belief in Jesus by our loyalty to him matters. We, we, we can't live half loyal to Jesus. And there's always temptations to that. There's always temptations to have our loyalties and our affinities to some group or another, to some cause or another, to some person or another. But we can't live half loyal to Jesus and again and then expect somehow to still be magically protected. The flaming arrows will start coming and we'll go to like lift up our shield and like there's nothing there. It's the way armor works. You have to put it on. You have to pick it up. Two more. You guys ready? We're winding down. Number five, he talks about salvation. Again, a really like big churchy religious word. He means thinking and making decisions based on our hope of salvation is crucial for survival. Again, what they saw is the helmet, which protects your brain, right? Right? A head wound is bad. You get hit in the head in a battle and you're done for. This is where our decisions are made. This is where the control center of our body originates from. And, and I think this is interesting that he uses salvation with the mind because the surest way to lose in a fight is to get psyched out, to get confused, to get distracted, to have our minds all jumbled up with a whole bunch of other things rather than staying focused. And in my, in, my, in my experience, right, both in my own life and in talking to other believers over the years, is I, I think the mind is often the primary battleground. This is why Paul elsewhere says that we must be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That if we don't learn to think like saved people, people who are, have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved, if we don't learn to think that way, then we leave ourselves Vulnerable. The interesting parts about saved in Ephesians is he says in verse two or chapter two, verses eight, five and eight, he says, God made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. So in Paul's salvation, salvation is root, his view, his salvation is rooted in grace. Not something that we do, but we know that everything that good to us comes through the grace of Jesus. Our total dependence on grace matters. We can't take things into our own hands. And then finally, he talks about the word of God. And I'll throw out one simple thing for you here with this. Is that the threefold word of God is powerful for self-defense. We might get really, really excited here. He calls this the sword of the spirit. And we're like, finally, an offensive weapon, right? Like, we can fight with this. Um, Still, in context, this is largely a defensive weapon. 
right? When the battle gets close and there has to be some hand-to-hand combat, we've got something maneuverable that we can use, much like the shield. But here's the deal about, about word. Oftentimes, and I think for good reason, right? I'm not dissing this, but for good reason, uh, we Christians refer to the whole Bible as the word of God. Have you heard this, right? Um, not untrue. I'm on board with that. Um, the thing is, is at this time, there was no Bible, right? In context, this isn't what Paul meant. There were no scriptures written. Even this letter he was writing, I don't think that Paul had in his mind, you know, I'm writing some like holy scripture. It's going to be canonized and passed down through the centuries and translated into all these languages. And it's going to be authoritative, you know? It happened. It's good. I'm glad that it did. Um, But there's this idea of the threefold word of God. I think this is a Lutheran thing, actually. But whenever we talk about the word of God, we mean the written word of God, the scriptures. We mean the incarnate word of God, Jesus, right? As John describes him in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. But also the contemporary word of God. What is God speaking to us here and now today? in the quiet of our own hearts and through prophecy? Are we listening to God through all of these ways? Our ability to listen to God matters. And if we don't take care to listen, to learn his voice, it's gonna be drowned out in the din of the world. To wrap up, let me just suggest a couple quick things to you by way of getting a little more practical, is that we have to pay close attention to the devils behind the curtain. Number one, if you are in a place where you're experiencing any kind of like relational unhealth or relational tension with someone, there's attack coming there. Maybe it's an opportunity to learn how to tell the truth, just to tell the truth in love. And again, I won't belabor this, but as we engage in politics, Maybe we need to bring peace. We need to be people that learn how to engage in conversation and engage with different ideas, but bringing peace to it. And third, finally, maybe you're listening to all of this and you're like, okay, there's this good side and this bad side. There's God's side and there's devils. There's all of this. I don't even know what side I'm on. I don't even know if I believe any of this. Then maybe the place to begin is with the helmet of salvation. Maybe the place to begin is with the helmet of salvation. And let me just encourage you guys, come to Jesus for salvation. Because this entire thing can feel really intimidating. It can feel kind of scary. I think, I think Paul is trying to ramp up a little bit of like our nerves, right? That like the stakes are kind of high. They're not small. He's not trying to downplay any of the danger. And the hope, though, that any of us have in any of it is only found in Jesus. So even this morning when we get towards the end and we're going to do some prayer time, I'd encourage you to come and invite someone to, like, pray with you if you've never said yes to Jesus, right? We're having baptism classes next Sunday, right? Again, as Reese announced earlier, that maybe this is an opportunity for you to enter into all this and to begin to pull back the curtain by saying yes to Jesus. Why don't you guys stand with me?